Well, hello family. Good to see you guys. Yeah, I too want to just thank everyone that came earlier this week to, to help out at First Christian as well, all the cleaning they did. It was just it was tremendous. Um, we are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, grab them, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, just three verses uh, today, but they are packed. They are so uh, important if we are going to flourish as humans and as a society, really. Jesus is going to talk about committing adultery in its fullest sense this week. Uh, so please give your uh, attention to the reading of God's word. Matthew five twenty-seven to 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as we pray, I just want to invite everyone uh, just to close your eyes. Uh, we're in a new place, and so uh, there's a lot of newness, distracting us and calling out for our attention. If you just close your eyes right now, we're going to pray. I just want to ask you to take a deep breath. Jesus, we love you. You're so beautiful, and you are making us beautiful, and you want good for us. You want us to flourish, and you're showing us the way. Help us hear you today. Help us love what you love. It's in your sacred name we ask it all. Amen. So something that I uh, find kind of funny is that many Christians are uncomfortable uh, discussing sex, uh, especially at church or even in like a private Bible study, yet Jesus is quite comfortable talking about it. I mean, remember, he's on a mountain outside in public in a like mixed company talking about this. He's quite comfortable doing that. There's many of us, uh, there is inside many of us a type of shame about the gift of sex and it causes anxiety in us when the topic is brought up. And that shame comes from a variety of sources, uh, such as our personal experiences or maybe how our parents did or did not discuss it discuss sex with us growing up, or maybe how our faith communities framed the topic as something, you know, it's bad and we should avoid it, you know, until you get married and then don't avoid it. And so the default mode for uh, some of us in the church is to avoid talking about it all together because I just don't want to feel that feeling. So I just won't talk about it. And this actually only adds to the shame and adds to the confusion that we feel about this part of being a human. And it is a very big part of being a human. And Jesus, this whole Sermon on the Mount is about us flourishing as humans, right? This is eternal life. 
See, we mistakenly believe that when it comes to sexual behavior, merely avoiding certain acts makes us righteous in God's eyes. See, I don't do that like them, and I don't do that like them, therefore I'm a good person, and they're not. I'm righteous. For example, what Jesus is bringing up is if I can just merely avoid the act of adultery with another woman or man, then, you know, we're good. We're a righteous person in God's eyes. Jesus wants to cut through some of our confusion with his interpretation of this part of the law. Remember, Jesus has framed this whole section of Scripture by saying at the very top, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, what? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in this passage, we see that according to Jesus, this greater righteousness that he's talking about, this whole person righteousness is a heart that's been freed from lust. I know what you're thinking. That can't happen. But is that what Jesus teaches? Maybe we should be more optimistic as people who believe in the resurrection than we say we are. So today we're going to talk about what does lust actually do to us, because it, it's not just like a sin, it's doing something. Okay? And then we're going to look at how do we get free from it. And this is a very different, Jesus reframes this very differently for us. I hope you find this really helpful. First of all, what does it do to us? Well, he tells us, he says, a lustful heart will send our whole body to hell. Jesus talks about hell a lot. You know, meek and mild, everybody's buddy Jesus. A lustful heart will send our whole body to hell. It's here in the text. Meet me in verse 27. Jesus, this is Jesus talking now. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so once again, uh, we've been saying this every week, Jesus is not nullifying the law, the Old Testament. He is not nullifying the law against adultery, but neither is he adding this higher, like more stringent level of obedience to it. Rather, Jesus is showing us its fuller meaning. He's a transformationalist, right? And so in order to understand the fuller meaning of what Jesus is teaching, we need to, uh, we need to clarify what is lustful intent? What does that actually mean? And, and how does that relate to adultery? And we need to understand, like, how does that contrast with what we would call attraction? Is that the same thing or is it a contrast? And so here's, here's my definition of lust. It's not in any dictionary. It's just my working definition that, that I'm using, okay? You can adopt it or not, all right? Lust is when we humanize an object or objectify a human for our own self-gratification. I think that's just the simplest way to define it. Lust is when we humanize an object that can be an animal, that can be an inanimate object. It's when we humanize an object or we personify it or we objectify a human for our own self-gratification. Okay? So lust or lustful intent, this is about using someone or something to gratify not them, but me. At its very core, lust is about consuming, or in some cases, possessing. It's not about connecting with them. 
It's not about making a connection and knowing them and being known by them. It's a consuming them or possessing them. They're mine. Okay, that's mine. And so therefore, lustful intention, this phrase, is using our God-given imagination to desire to mentally use someone else for our gratification. You're mentally using someone else for our own gratification. And so let's be really clear. Lustful intent is what Jesus is condemning. Lustful intent is what Jesus is condemning here. Jesus is not condemning the feeling of attraction that we often, I would say, regularly experience when we're in community with other people. You can be honest. I know you guys have all felt attraction for people. We all do it. So let's just be open with that when you're in community with people. Remember, God designed us to be attracted to what? Beauty. In radiance. Remember a few weeks ago, you are a city on a hill, you are a light. That's radiance. And so we are being we are being made beautiful and radiant, and we are designed to be attracted to beauty and radiance. We're going to naturally be attracted to someone that is beautiful, whether they are married to someone else or not. We'll be naturally attracted to someone that is loving. You're going to be naturally attracted to someone that's full of joy, aren't you? Don't you want to be around them more? Someone that is, you find that they're really at peace with themselves in the the world? Someone who's kind, gentle? Someone who sees me. You see me. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's generative and life-giving. That's not decaying, right? So you're going to be naturally attracted to that. Why? Because at our deep, because the deepest desire that God has put in every single one of you and me included is this desire to connect with other souls. And so we do a disservice and frankly we add unnecessary shame on people when we confuse attraction with lustful intent. Uh, the New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, I think, is really helpful in making this clarification for us. He says, quote, the Greek that's used in verse 28 communicates the idea of purpose or the idea of intention, admiring beauty or experiencing the natural attraction to beauty is not the issue here. Experiencing the natural attraction to beauty is not the issue here, but rather using the creational gift of the imagination, or Jesus would use the word heart, for the purpose of fantasizing about and objectifying another man's wife as a sexual partner, close quote. So Jesus, listen, he's not saying that viewing women lustfully is as destructive as the physical act of adultery. That would be absurd. Jesus, rather, is saying that it is as damnable. Jesus is poking a hole into the notion that God's only concerned with our external behaviors. As long as I had the right idea, he didn't care what I do. He's like, no, what you do shows what you care about. Actually, it is telling the truth. This notion that, hey, so long as a man doesn't physically sleep with someone else that's not his wife, he's okay with God. He's on good terms with God. God's okay with that. Like he can entertain mental images of her 
for his own private gratification, and then he can just somehow comfortably enter the kingdom of God and live forever with all the other people that are in the kingdom that he has been doing that to. He's poking a hole in that. Jesus says, listen to me, guys. He says, nope. Nope. Your mental acts count as much as your physical acts. You're using your heart to devalue someone else that is made in God's image even though you're not using your physical hands or body to do it. Listen, you're consuming and possessing a person. I mean, that's what a photo is. That's in my possession. You are in my possession, and I can look at you whenever I jolly well feel like it, right? It's possession. And it's a good thing to want to take a picture of beauty. We talked about it a few weeks ago, but there's this, there's this idea of lust is different. Jesus says that kind of split person living, I, I do one thing, but I want something different, that split level of living, Jesus says that's damnable. Not just for you, but for them. Listen, Jesus says, look, your heart will send your whole body to hell. I hope that lands on all of us. This is one of the major problems with uh, much of the teaching about sex in the in like youth groups in the 1990s, by the way. The so-called purity movement. You heard about that? And true love waits and all this kind of stuff. Spiritual leaders, and I gotta say this, Christian publishing companies who made money off that. Let's be honest. It's a business. <laughs> They focused on these external behaviors with the adolescents in the youth groups and in the church services. They'd say, look, if you want to be a pure person, then don't have sex before your wedding night. And then all bets are off. That was like the promise. And they added these, even these extra rules that weren't in the Bible. And you shouldn't even kiss. You shouldn't even hold hands since they're not your wife or your husband yet. Because that could lead to sex. And, you know, that's something you ought to avoid. So we're going to build a fence around all this. Okay? Good, good motives, good intentions, but that's what was kind of put out there and published and taught. They taught young men that feeling attraction, feeling attraction to a pretty young girl was the same thing as lust. The same thing as lustful intent. And they taught that these lustful urges were far too powerful for them to control. So you got to just try not to even have them. Because you, once they happen, once you have that urge, you can't control it, young man. It's like a fire. They're just at the mercy of their hormones. The effect, though, of this culture, and it was more of a culture than a teaching, the effect of this Christian culture was that either the young men felt unremitting shame nearly every day of his life for being attracted to girls, or they eventually said, you know what? Forget it. 
I mean, what's the point of resisting? Since you're saying I can't really resist it anyway, it's so deeply a part of me, I'm diving in and I'm out of the church. I just feel bad when I come here. So for many, on the flip side of this, by the way, many young women in this purity culture made young men, it made these young men they're around pretty scary to be around. Think about it. Since they were no more than animals who couldn't control their urges and desires at any given minute. (laughs) Young women were taught to make certain that they didn't do anything that might accidentally trigger those or tempt those young men. And how could they ever know when that was going to happen? They couldn't. After all, these men can't, these young men can't really help themselves. That's the only thing they're thinking about. That's the only thing that's on their mind when they're in the presence of a girl. That's what we're taught, right? See, the effect that actually happened was that many young women felt either afraid to be around young men and learn how to develop good, uh, healthy dating relationships without a chaperone someone to like lifeguard and get in there and break the guy off, you know. Or they felt very insecure about how they dressed and their body. It's a lot of responsibility for like them to help us out. But see, and then when you got married, somehow like all this was supposed to just magically go away. You were just supposed to simply flip a switch after you said I do on the honeymoon after years and years and hours and hours and hours of negative conditioning and act like marital intimacy was just safe and holy and very affectionate and good. Didn't happen, did it? Did not happen. The ironic thing is that, that it didn't happen for many people because of how they were taught. And it wasn't like some, sometimes it was an explicit teaching, yes, and amen. And sometimes it was just the culture of the people in churches and youth groups. Listen, guys, thousands and thousands of young married Christian men treated their wives like an outlet for their sexuality. And I got that on pretty good authority. These young men, their thinking was, I did everything right before I got married. I did it the right way. I did the externally righteous things before I got married. They waited years and years to have sex and repressed all that, didn't talk about it or act on any of that, except in their mind maybe. See? Their thinking was, now you owe me your body, regardless of how you feel tonight or any night for that matter, you owe me. Because that was hard. Isn't that consuming someone? Or possessing someone? You're my possession? Even in a marriage relationship? Marriage doesn't make that all right. Hey, marriage doesn't make that all right. Isn't that scary and unsafe for of arrangement for a young woman to be in? Yes, the answer is yes. Do you see how practical this stuff Jesus is teaching us? This is about flourishing as humans. Listen, that's what happens when religious people, because those outside the church were trying to tell us and we didn't listen to them. 
This is what happens when religious church people focus heavily on the external righteous behavior, but they completely ignore addressing the heart. What does Paul say about the Pharisees and the Jews in Romans 10? I, I bear witness. They have a zeal for righteousness, but it's a righteousness of their own making. That was a great intention and had disastrous consequences, guys. A whole generation grows up either confused on the one hand or victimized on the other because they've learned how to live as a split person. They've learned how to live as a split person instead of a wholehearted person, a fully integrated person. That's not flourishing. That's damning. And we're now learning how that kind of teaching over time was incredibly damaging to marriages. Oh, and by the way, friendships. And our ability to interact in social settings with members of the opposite sex. We're going to do that. Because we got like one category. These young men, these young women grew up 30 years later and now they're part of the Me Too carnage and the Church Too carnage. They are. And their testimonies are coming into the light through social media and frankly through documentaries. This is one of them. A marriage or a faith community or even a society where we view other human beings as put on the planet for our self-gratification will break down. It will break apart. Jesus warns us to make no mistakes, family. A lusting heart will send our entire body to hell. It starts now and it goes on. So Jesus tells us this. He tells us the practical outworking of this truth. We need to radically remove the cause of lust. You and I need to spend a little bit of energy on removing, radically removing, the cause of lust. It's here in verse 29. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. That's not a medical procedure, by the way. (laughs) Tear it out and throw it away. Don't even go back to it. Right? Why? For it is better. For it is better. Listen, Jesus wants better for you, not lesser. You got to know his motivation. You got to know his heart. Jesus actually wants a better life for you and me. He's not trying to take anything good from you. He's trying to give us something good. Amen? Why? For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole, what's that word? Body. Is he being metaphorical there? I don't think so. For your whole body to be thrown in your hell. That's what we sin with, by the way, and that's what we worship with our body, right? It is like us. It matters to God. See, because of the consequences of living with this, with a heart or imagination that objectifies other people, you know what objectify means, right? It means someone that's a person and you make them an object, right? Because of the consequence of living with a heart or an imagination that objectifies other people for our own self-gratification is, because those consequences are so severe, this is not a problem we should casually tinker with in our spare time if we have a free weekend. 
Yes? When it comes to a lustful lustful intention, we are not to be hobbyists. We're to be fanatics. That's what the word fan means, by the way. Fanatic about this. Jesus teaches that our approach should be nothing short of the radical removal of the cause, even if that removal is something valuable to us. Like a right eye, a right hand. Jesus says it's better. It's a better life for you. It is a better way of life to cut out your eye or to cut off your own hand if it causes us to sin than for us our whole body to experience the the judgment of God. Now notice something. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to lust, cut it out, right? If your hand causes you to lust, cut it off. So let me ask you this question. Does your eye cause you to lust after what you're looking at? Does your hand cause you to lust about what you're touching or who you're touching? Are these parts of our body the source of lustful desires or are they the mechanisms to fulfill them and indulge them? They're the mechanisms, the instruments to indulge them. That's what Paul calls the body in 1 Corinthians. It's an instrument. So then what is the source of lust then? What, what, what causes it? Well, Jesus has already named it. He was just kind of a little sneaky about it, but he already named it. It's in the previous verse. It's our heart. It doesn't mean your little heart. It means the core of our being, our thoughts, our mind, our desires, our wanter. It's our wanter, okay? That's the source of it. So now listen, let's go back. Let's follow Jesus' logic. It's ironclad logic, by the way. If your eye causes you to lust, we should get radical and completely remove it. If your hand is the source of lust, we should get radical and completely remove it. But since it's actually our heart that is the source of lust, we should get radical and completely remove it. See, in order for you and I to enter the kingdom of heaven, in order for us to live eternal life, that's that's what the kingdom of God is. It's eternal life. It's this whole person, obedience to God. Listen, we must cut out our heart with all of its decreating, dehumanizing cravings, and we must replace it with a different kind of heart. Listen, we need to remove our heart that lusts after others and replace it with a heart that loves others. What is powerful enough to remove or displace a heart that lusts. It's an act of pure love by Jesus himself. Listen, only love can displace lust. You need to know that. This is what set Jesus apart from any other teacher. It's this, listen, right here. Jesus does make demands on you and me. Yes, he does. But Jesus, what Jesus requires of us, he has provided for us. Okay? Jesus knows just 
how dirty and lustful our hearts are, even if nobody else knows it. He knows that about you and me. He knows how we humanize objects and we objectify humans for our own pleasure and self-gratification to make us feel big and strong or loved or whatever. And he knows that we deserve, we deserve to be cut off from life and thrown into hell for that. But Christ's love is so great and deep and wide and long and high that he was completely cut off and his entire body was thrown into hell so that we who commit adultery in our mind daily with people would not be cut off from the giver of life. We would not experience any kind of a hell. Isn't that amazing about Jesus? This is the love of Jesus Christ. And listen, it wasn't his merely his right eye that was gouged out. It wasn't his merely his right hand that was pierced and cut off. It, it was his whole body was radically cut off from the land of the living, the Psalms say. He was cut off from, he was cut down in his prime in his 30s, a young man. He was cut off completely. Why? To make you whole. To make me whole. He was less of a person so you could be a full person full of life. Isn't he good? Can the church say amen? Listen, we, listen, when you take time to imagine, mentally imagine, don't say, hey, imagine he doesn't do anything. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Of course it does things. Of course it changes you. When you take time to imagine that act of love, that supreme love, to quote John Coltrane, love supreme. When you imagine that act of love, when you burn energy picturing and playing that over and over, that sacrifice for you, listen, it will transform your heart. It will change your heart. It will change what you want. It will change what you hate. It will change what you love. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're not telling you the gospel. They're cynical. Jesus didn't put you on the cross, adulterer, and sacrifice your body for His pleasure, for His satisfaction. He didn't do that to you, did He? To gratify Himself. On the cross, Jesus sacrificed His body for your eternal pleasure, for your flourishing, for your satisfaction. What Psalms uh, 17 say? You've made known to me the way of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Picture that act of love. Picture that over and over and over and over and that removes our heart of lust. Love removes lust. Love removes lust. You don't have to avoid lust. Just go after love. It's a better use of your energy. It's more rewarding. Did you hear me? It's more rewarding to go after love than just try to hold back lust. Jesus does not merely remove our heart, but he goes even further. He replaces it. He displaces it. You can't, you can't really just repress stuff. Really, change comes when we, when, we, when we displace it 
of a higher affection, a newer affection. You can't not want. You just got to get a better, stronger wanter. That's how change happens, guys. It really is. Thomas Chalmers, 19th century pastor. He replaces it with a different heart. It's a new heart. Well, how does he do that? How does he do that, you're wondering? Here's how he does that. By making us all family. Didn't see that coming, did you? Didn't see that coming. Snuck up on you. Makes us all family. Jesus again, same book, Matthew. We're just going to go farther down. Everything he says, guys, in the Sermon on the Mount, he repeats later in Matthew, and he goes in fuller exposition. So let's go chapter 12, verse 48. Meet me there. But he replied to the man, this is Jesus. Remember, they're in the house. Man who told him, he says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and here are my brothers. For whoever does, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's the family. Out of Jesus' own mouth. Listen, how are people in God's kingdom to view and see each other? As potential like threats? Potential like sexual predators? We're supposed to see everybody that way until they prove us wrong? We're supposed to see each other as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith. They might have something to teach us and help us. It's much, much harder to see someone as a person to consume when you see them as your big sister. Okay? I get a, I don't know how Kathy feels about it. I call her sis all the time. I bet, do you get a kick out of that? Hey, sis. Glad to hear from you. Hey, brother. See, listen, it's much harder. I didn't say it's impossible. I'm just saying it's much harder to see someone who wants to, someone who wants to consume you when you look at them as your little brother, they're your little brother. What's my little brother going to do to me? <laughs> you know? That's my kid brother. I'm supposed to look out for him. I'm supposed to take care of him. He didn't know any better. In fact, one of the ways practical, some of you guys are like, well, like, I want like homework steps or whatever. Here's it gets real practical. One of the ways that our heart slowly changes over time, and our heart only changes by like two millimeters at a time, by the way. Okay? is to call each other, literally call each other brother and sister. Or mother or father, if you can handle that. Okay? You don't believe me, do you? You do? Or I'll prove it. All right, first, you make me prove it every time. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. It's in the Bible. The great apostle says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would what? A father. He didn't say even your father, Right? He just said, a father. You know what a good father is supposed to be like even if you had a bad dad, right? Notice the wording? As you would a father. How about this? Young men as what? Brothers. Not competition. Not potential sexual predators. That's the only thing they ever think about. Brothers. How about older women? Mothers. Okay? That's why I call Kathy sis. All right? <laughs> She's a young lady. Younger women as sisters. In all, there's that word, purity. 
You go home and just think about There's a lot just right there. At the beginning, I said that the strongest desire that every one of us has is to be known by someone else. It is not sex. That's what the world told us. But what is that actually pointing us to? Intimacy. Being known. That's really what that's for. And that's how we know that's a true statement. We want to be known completely by someone else. We want to be intimately connected to someone else. Sex within marriage is a way to experience and it is a way to express that fundamental desire. But listen, it's not the ultimate way. It's not the ultimate way to have intimacy and closeness and safety and soothing and security. And by the way, that's really good news. Why? Because not everyone's able to participate in that way. Depending on what your attractions are, right? See, here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's flourishing. Here's eternal life. Jesus and the entire rest of the New Testament tells us that there is a relationship where we can experience intimacy and deep, robust connection, and beauty, and safety, and soothing with other people that we want without the presence of lust putrefying those conversations and that time we spend together. There really is. You know what that relation is? Family relationships. Family relationships. We know this to be true already. It's pretty easy to be alone with your sister for hours and hours and hours and be at peace, right? I mean, you're just like, I'm just thinking about what we're talking about. I don't have to think about other things. You're just present. I mean, you can tell your mom or you can tell your dad really personal stuff and you can go away feeling loved and you can go away feeling known and heard, right? Amen? That is how we are to view one another and that is how you remove the heart of lust over time, over time. But that's how it's done. That's part of how it's done, I should say. Listen, you're praying with your big sister. That's who you're praying with. Whether you're in a group or alone, you're praying with your big sister regardless of who she's married to or not. Isn't that more simple? You're pouring your heart out to your little kid brother, regardless of who he's married to. I mean, you just don't think of them that way, right? And you don't think of them. It doesn't cross your mind. Why? Because you love them. You love them. You enjoy their presence in, in your life. You enjoy talking on the phone with them. And you're ultimately looking out for their good. You're looking out for their welfare whenever you're engaging and fortifying that relationship. Listen, literally calling them brother or sister. When we interface and interact can help us call this, this reality back to our mind. It jogs our memory a little bit. Oh, yeah. Guys, this is what Paul actually means when he calls us to renew our minds. This is what Paul means when he says that we have the mind of Christ. Christ was in the room and said, these are my brothers and sisters. That's the mind of Christ. We mentally picture one another the way that we do our siblings or our parents or grandparents. 
We spend energy imagining them that way instead of imagining them another way. Because we're going to spend energy imagining. See? And then our hearts are free from lust. It's off the table. At least as far as we're concerned. It's off the table. We are free to spend time, meaningful time, talking about meaningful instead of superficial, this feels a little awkward kind of conversations. We get to know one another without fear. For perfect fear. What does perfect mean? Teleos? Whole. Complete, right? Perfect love casts out all fear. I love you guys. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, our big elder brother who is always looking out for us, who is always going first, who is always going ahead of us, who calls us brother and sister and mother and father. Help us have the mind of Christ. Help us think of you this way. The world needs us to think this way. The world literally needs us to think about each other this way and treat each other this way. To be that city on a hill. We love you. Convict us of our lustful intent. Help us confess it, renounce it, where we're dehumanizing people. And help us turn to you, the author of eternal life. You are the way. It's in your sacred name, Jesus, we ask. Amen.